So today what I want to talk about on the New Discourses podcast is the defense of the status quo. I'm James Lindsay. I'm the founder of New Discourses. And I think that we've come to a point with um, the current radicalism that's running wild where we actually need to give a defense of the status quo, which is just about unthinkable uh, if you listen to any of this activism that we're hearing. The status quo, the status quo, the status quo, that's the problem. That's the thing we all have to be against. And somebody, I guess meaning me because I'm somebody, needs to defend the status quo. So I want to give a defense of the status quo, um, but I'm not really going to defend the status quo. And this is kind of the trick that keeps getting played, right? So even though these very radical activists have shown their hand in a sense to be very radical. Uh, they, they have this kind of series of tricks to where the thing you have to do to go against them is to, and against their radicalism, I should specify, is to go against something or be for something that goes against everything we stand for. You have to, you know, go against social justice. You have to go against a statement like Black Lives Matter or even say that there's more complexity to it than those three simple words convey. You have to defend something like the status quo. You have to go against anti-racism. They're very good at cooking the linguistic books this way. And it's a cheap trick. And so today I want to defend the status quo but I'm not really going to do that because that would obviously put me in a position to where I look like I'm terrible. Oh, James is a big fan of the status quo. He just wants to keep things the same. He just wants to maintain racism, so on and so forth, because they say the status quo is racist. They say the status quo is inequitable. They say the status quo itself is unfair. So I want to do something a little more complex than that. In fact, I want to defend something that doesn't exist in a sense if I defend the status quo. And that's what I want to do is I want to show you that the thing that they want to tear down doesn't even really exist. And that's because of the system that we we, we have and we operate in doesn't allow for a status quo the way that they portray it to exist. So the thing that they say that we need to tear down, the status quo they say we need to tear down, is a ghost. It's a phantom uh, of the worst corners of our imaginations, of their imaginations, I really should say. And um, the thing that really is the status quo that they want to tear down is something that A, we should want to keep, and B, is actually anathema to a status quo in the dark evil sense that they imply. So what I want to argue is that in free societies, the status quo doesn't really exist. And the thing that we're being asked to dismantle and overthrow in its name is something quite different that we definitely want to keep and doesn't look anything remotely like a status quo. Everybody likes when you kind of start with where a word comes from, I guess, so not usually my style, but status quo doesn't just derive from the Latin. It is Latin, so it's really pronounced status quo, I guess. And what it means is the state in which, which means the state in which things are. So I want to show you that there are two meanings for status quo and we're being had 
on our basic liberal progressive impulses toward societal progress. And, and, and let me be clear, even most conservatives share these. I'm not talking about left-wing American politics with words like liberal and progressive. I'm talking about making things better in free societies, which basically everyone agrees with. So meaning number one for the status quo is the bad guy in this story. It's the meaning that preys upon our liberal and progressive instincts and puts us in the hands of these radicals. Um, status quo in this regard means keeping things basically the same and thus maintaining the bad parts of the bad old days as we'll understand those maybe in 20, 30, 50, or 100 years from now about our own current societies. This is the meaning that social activists use and are forcing upon us. It's a totally bogus meaning of status quo, but it's central to their entire project. They have to keep us thinking that's what they mean. They have to keep people believing that these terrible things that we'll look back upon in 50 years are the status quo, and that what is meant by the status quo is always going to be inequitable. And that's kind of their giveaway. They always think the status quo is inequitable. They always think the status quo is racist. They always think the status quo is bad. We'll come to that. Meaning number two for status quo is kind of the good guy in this story. It's the thing I want to defend by saying it doesn't really exist, um, at least not in the way that meaning number one implies. So the status quo in this regard means keeping things basically the way they are and maintaining exactly the good parts of our rather high-functioning system that will in fact let us look back at our present time in 20, 30, 50, or 100 years and see the ways in which we are actually still making parts of our society into what will be called the bad old days. In fact, what I want to convince you of is the reason we will be able to look back in 20, 30, 50, or 100 years and see how different and in some ways bad things are now is for the same reason that we can look backwards from now 20, 30, 50, or 100 years and see how different and in some ways bad things were then compared to now. And that reason is because we actually do make progress using the systems that these radicals want to call the status quo. That's the status quo I want to defend, whereas the status quo in the sense of keeping things the same is actually anathema to the system that they call the status quo. Now, if you're a regular listener to the New Discourses podcast, you will have already heard me talk somewhat recently about a rhetorical strategy called the Mott and Bailey rhetorical strategy. As a quick reminder, it works like this. Literally speaking, a Mott is a castle that you could retreat to. It's literally the rook piece in chess. And a Bailey is a fertile farmland and village that's great to live in and work in that's around the Mott and is defended by the Mott. The idea would be that when the bad guys come and try to take over your good farmland, your village, Everybody can retreat into the mott, hide and be safe, and rain arrows down on the invaders. Then, when the invaders go away, the people can go back out, reclaim their bailey, rebuild, and get on with things. It's a kind of um, castle-oriented uh, defense mechanism 
to, to protect a strategy to protect uh, a, a community maybe it's you know a mile or so in diameter in the rhetorical sense you have basically the same thing but we're not talking about physical farmland and castles we're talking about arguments and agendas in the rhetorical sense the mot is something that's really defensible we want progress we don't want to stay in the bad old days if we've always looked back and seen bad old days you know then we've got to reflect these are very easily defended statements and in fact you can rain arrows down why should we be so arrogant to think that what that that we're done with the bad old days now when all through history everywhere you look you can look backwards another 20 30 50 100 years and see how much it used to be worse why should we be so arrogant to believe we have it right now that's raining arrows down from the mot the bailey is a much more radical position or proposal that the activist really wants to advance and achieve and that somehow aligns if you can squint hard enough with the mot here for example we should dismantle the system we should decolonize the curriculum and our bookshelves and stem we should shut down stem shut down the academies defund the police we should remake everything with a radical agenda that gets rid of all the things we currently imagine that we will see one day later as the bad old days maybe 50 years from now and we should do it by any means necessary or by these particular means that we have socially engineered brokering no discussion proceed by demands these are different things the idea is that the activist will push that radical Bailey agenda that, that dismantle, disrupt, defund, abolish, remake, subvert. They will, they will push that radical agenda as much as they possibly can until they get properly challenged, at which point they'll retreat to that defensible mod. Oh, we just want to make things better. We just want to, to, to get rid of the problems. They'll do that as quickly as possible, and then they'll rain arrows down on everybody else until that pressure goes away why are you in favor of racism then are you so you're just saying that you think that the the racism that's in the system should continue those are raining arrows down from a from a castle it's just it's just terrible terrible rhetorical strategy that's being applied very very effectively so anyway regular listeners to this podcast will also know my advice regarding what to do when you see this strategy you have to get educated enough to be able to steal their mott and then bomb their bailey every single time. So what that means is you have to be able to recognize the kernels of truth in their mott position. Yeah, we want progress too. Yeah, we know we're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Nothing's perfect. Fine. Move on. And then you have to ob utterly obliterate their bailey position. Social engineering never works. It usually backfires. Any means necessary is stupid and dangerous because the method always matters. Progress may necessarily be a mostly organic process that can only take place in a stable way if it takes place incrementally because things actually are so complicated that we would need the kind of developing information that comes along with proceeding step by step in order to prevent the bad intended consequences uh, or seeing things spiral out of control. You kind of see this already with their little fake country in Seattle, Chaz or whatever they call it, 
where they've declared an autonomous autonomous zone in a few blocks around uh, Capitol Hill and uh, they were going to abolish the police and get rid of the police and all of this and then more or less immediately within days they're talking about we are the police now you know we're going to force people to do this we're going to force people to do this it's just it just doesn't work I've already covered that whole process in another podcast though so I'm not going to do that we're just going to talk about the status quo right now because I have to defend that and say it doesn't exist at the same time so before I turn to the woke position on the status quo I need to say the thing that I'm going to come back to later in more detail everyone who understands how philosophically liberal principles work how science works how free societies work how the law works how everything actually works in our existing system will immediately understand that there's no status quo here at all. We live in a society where things are constantly changing. They're constantly open to improvement. They're constantly having the bad ideas challenged and maybe inch by inch changed. Maybe we all slip backwards sometimes, but we have the tools to reverse course when we figure out that we went the wrong way and get back to moving forward. The point of a free liberal society is that it doesn't allow a status quo to exist for very long. It's in flux. It's constantly moving. All we need is one willing investigator, or ideally a lot of them, that are willing to look for the truth. A willing plaintiff who's willing to challenge injustice in court. A willing voice who's going to speak up. And then things can begin to change. Sometimes there's resistance. Sometimes it's slow. Sometimes, however, it's quite quick and people hear the problem, see the problem, and make adjustments rather quickly. The point is that change is the fundamental nature of a free liberal society. Every religious, you know, fundamentally far conservative religious person for years has been telling us that we change too fast, we change too fast, we change too fast. The problem with liberalism is that it's always changing. Nothing's stable. That's the point. Liberal free societies change constantly. So that status quo we are constantly hearing about and being told we have to tear down doesn't even exist. It's a ghost. It's a phantom. It's a boogeyman that's been invented to keep radicals in business by playing on the best parts of people's nature. It's a trick. And it is that free liberal society itself and the ways that they've been established to work that the radicals call the status quo. And their spirit, when they approach this idea, is best captured in the the words, which I'll paraphrase, of one of their most revered thinkers, the radical Brazilian educator uh, Paulo Freire, who my my Brazilian friends tell me ruined education in Brazil. And he said that for a revolution to be authentic, it must be perpetual. For the moment it stops being revolutionary, it becomes the status quo. So now I want to give you kind of a series of glimpses into the way that these radical activists, typically scholar activists or activist scholars would be a better way to put it, think about the status quo and have written about the status quo over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, It should give you some hint that what they're talking about isn't the bad old days. It's something fundamentally different. So here's what the very famous black feminist activist scholar Bell Hooks, whose real name is Gloria Watkins, has written about Freire in a very influential education text she wrote called Teaching to Transgress. Uh, So to give you the context here, she starts out by acknowledging how problematic Freire is for being a sexist, and then writes, I came to Freire thirsty, 
dying of thirst in that way that the colonized, marginalized subject who is still unsure of how to break the hold of the status quo, who longs for change, is needy, is thirsty. And I found in his work, in the work of Malcolm X, Fanon, etc., a way to quench that thirst. To have work that promotes one liber- one, to have work that promotes one's liberation is such a powerful gift that it does not matter so much if the gift is flawed. Think of the work as water that contains some dirt, because if you're thirsty, you're not too proud to extract the dirt and be nourished by the water. So remember, the dirt here isn't radicalism or the kind of insanity that usually accompanies some out-of-control self-pity social grievance party. It's actually fairy sexism that she's identified. So it's just more problematics. And notice the overwhelming emotional, almost poetic emotional language. We're not trying to make a reasoned argument here. We're talking about, oh, this made me feel a certain way. Uh, But Putting that to the side and pointing out another aside, um, most of you, will, you she, you'll notice that, that Bell Hooks referred to Malcolm X and Fanon. Fanon is Franz Fanon. So most of you will be uh, familiar with Malcolm X, his vision, his eventual demise at the hands of his own people when he realized that his radicalism wasn't well-founded and tried to kind of walk it back, so they killed him. Uh, you'll be less familiar with Franz Fanon. He's a French psychoanalyst who studied the colonial condition and advocated literal violence against colonizers in explosive books like Black Skins, White Masks, and The Wretched of the Earth, which came out in the 1950s and early 1960s. Um, Whatever one thinks of Fanon's recommendations in that colonial context can be a matter of debate, that's fine, but we have to be aware of the present context, and that's one in which Fanon's radicalism and violence are preserved against colonialism, while colonialism has turned to include things like reading reading Shakespeare in college literature classes and teaching South African kids white western math and science or time and space, the very notions of time and space or uh, in the context of the nominally anti-fascist literature that's now obviously getting some attention Um, it would be owning and running a Starbucks franchise or a Target store that because they are colonialist apparently need to have a liberatory brick thrown through their glass windows or be looted and burned because whiteness is property. So these appeals, you know, aren't zero. They, they, they matter what she's actually talking to. She came to Freire thirsty, the perpetual revolution guy, thirsty. Uh, so this kind of starts giving us a glimpse at what the woke, or if we're going to be more formal, the critical social justice scholars and activists mean by the status quo. What they mean is doing what we're doing now. Okay, doing what we're doing now. Not some terrible state of affairs, but the even the process. That's what I want to actually defend because they very wrongly believe that what we're doing now means that things always stay bad. Give you a little more of a glimpse into this as it's defined in um, Richard Delgado and Jean Stefanczyk's textbook, Critical Race Theory. The status quo is defined as the current state of things or way things are, usually said to require a good reason before it is changed. Um, yeah, it does require a good reason to, to change things that are working. Uh, unlike what the radicals want us to believe. We, we do really need a good reason. 
um, and you know, thirsty emotional appeals might not quite be that good reason, and we should probably remember that. Uh, so here's how Delgado and Stefanczyk described the same idea in relation to the progress of, of critical race theory, one of their radical theories, as it progresses through society. They write, A perhaps more likely outcome is that some of critical race theory will be accepted by society's mainstream and halls of power, while other parts of it will continue to meet resistance. The narrative turn and storytelling scholarship seem well on their way toward acceptance, as does the critique of merit. More radical features, such as recognition that the status quo is inherently racist, rather than merely sporadically and accidentally so, seem less likely to win out. So their more radical view here is that the status quo is inherently racist. That's actually what critical race theory advances. That's the idea from which it proceeds. The first pillar of critical race theory is that racism is the ordinary state of affairs in society. That's the first pillar as these same authors, Delgado and Stefanczyk, describe it. But they also say that the less radical and increasingly accepted parts, that we need a narrative turn, that we need storytelling as a means of uh, advancing knowledge, that uh, we should critique merit. Those are catching on, but they actually indirectly Im imply that evidence-based rational approach approaches are also inherently racist. So they say the radical vision's not being pushed, but it is. And they say that it's succeeding. And this is a major theme throughout the entire critical social justice academic literature, especially in critical race theory, that rigorous and empirical methods exclude other ways of knowing, and this perpetuates racism. So those rigorous methods must themselves be racist. We can turn to another uh, scholar, critical whiteness scholar, or an educator, Alison Bailey, who likens these kinds of things, uh, you know, rigorous methods, I should say, to the master's tools, which is a phrase from the black feminist Audre Lorde, who contended that the master's tools, meaning the tools we use to sustain society, will never dismantle the master's house, meaning the allegedly inequitable status quo of society that's inherently racist. So I've been criticized in the past for suggesting that Lord meant by master's tools, things like reason, science, civility, due process of law, and so on. Uh, and maybe she didn't specifically. Her piece is very short. It seems implied. But Alison Bailey made it explicit. Okay, Alison Bailey said explicitly that these things are part of the package, writing in 2017. In a paper she, in, that she wrote in 2017 that makes the case that white people can only disagree with critical race theory, especially in educational contexts, to preserve their own privilege and never for legitimate reasons, Bailey confirms what I was arguing. She writes, critical pedagogy, and there's a lot here by the way, there's a lot in this quote that people should, should chew on for, for a few minutes. This is one paragraph out of this paper, and there's a lot here. She writes, critical pedagogy begins from a different set of assumptions, meaning different than critical thinking, to be clear about the context, that are rooted in the neo-Marxian literature on critical theory, commonly associated with the Frankfurt School. Here, the critical learner is someone who is empowered and motivated to seek justice and emancipation. Critical pedagogy regards the claims that students make in response to social justice issues not as propositions to be assessed for their truth value, but as expressions of power that function to reinscribe and perpetuate social inequalities. 
Its mission is to teach students ways of identifying and mapping how power shapes our understandings of the world. This is the first step toward resisting and transforming social injustices. Let me pause here to point out what's going on. She is saying that the claims people make about social justice have nothing to do with reality. They have nothing to do with truth. In fact, have nothing to do with it. They should not even be assessed for their truth value because they are expressions of power meant to reinscribe social inequalities. Okay, so she's saying that truth doesn't matter because power is all that matters when we talk about social justice. Now, she says that the whole mission of critical education is to teach students ways to think this way. To think that everything's just power if it has to do with social justice or social injustices. So then she goes on and says, By interrogating the, politi- the politics of knowledge production, this tradition also calls in, the, the critical tradition also calls into question the uses of the accepted critical thinking toolkit to, distu- to determine epistemic adequacy. To extend Audre Lorde's classic metaphor, the tools of the critical thinking tradition, for example, validity, soundness, conceptual clarity, cannot dismantle the master's house. They can temporarily beat the master at his own game, but they can never bring about any enduring structural change. They fail because the critical thinker's toolkit is commonly invoked in particular settings at particular times to reassert power. Those adept with the tools often use them to restore an order that assures their own comfort. They can be habitually invoked to defend our epistemic home terrains. So the status quo in this case is epistemic adequacy, validity, soundness, conceptual clarity. We could add, obviously, empiricism, science, to that. Um, that's a very radical position. And to believe that those are mere assertions of power that are used to maintain one's comfortable, privileged position is Alison Bailey's primary thesis. We see the same theme showing up in more directly in education books. So reading from the uh, very famous critical educator Henry Giroux in his Ideology, Culture, and the process of schooling from 1981, and actually quoting that in the context as it was written about in Isaac Gotsman's book, The Critical Turn in Education from 2015, we see uh, first Gotsman, uh, at, at the core of this project is an attempt, the critical education project, is an attempt to lay bare the ideological and political character of the dominant rationality on which the basic premises of the educational field have been developed, particularly in the sociology of education and curriculum studies. These basic premises, Drew argues, are characterized by a culture of positivism that cannot reflect upon the meaning and value, or for that matter, upon anything. That cannot reflect upon, I'm sorry, meaning and value themselves, or for that matter, upon anything that cannot be verified in the empirical tradition. Since there is no room for human vision in this perspective, historical consciousness is stripped of its critical function and begin, and progress is limited to terms acceptable to the status quo. So here we have an explicit indication that what they mean by the status quo is the liberal system, which they think moves too slowly and is inadequate. And part of the reason they think that it is inadequate is because it depends upon what Giroux calls positivism, which 
most of the critical literature mistakes for science in general by saying that stuff that has to be empirically, scientifically uh, confirmed is, is the knowledge that we should proceed on when we make, say, policy decisions for education or anything else. So their implication is that this positivism means science, and the empirical tradition that it appeals to means science, and that that limits progress. That's the status quo, a system that relies upon knowing what we're talking about before we make decisions with it. That's the status quo that we need to disrupt. We see similar appeals to this showing up in other highly influential work, uh, say, for example, from the black feminist activist and epistemologist Christy Dotson, who wrote at length in both 2012 and 14 about how our epistemic or knowing systems uh, contain forms of violence called epistemic violence. And it's epistemic violence not to include the other ways of knowing of non-white people, especially black people, as though they're a kind of rigorous method on their own. If you recall, Delgado and Stefanczyk said that they're making advances with adv narratives and storytelling as alternatives. Okay, so Dotson makes the case that not treating narratives and storytelling as rigorous constitutes a form of epistemic violence. Dotson then outlines how demands for rigorous methods are, in, in her 2014 paper, which is much more uh, heavily cited and considered, demands for rigorous methods are, in fact, just another way of, per of perpetuating irreducible forms of what she calls epistemic oppression that are designed to keep marginalized knowledge, meaning storytelling and narratives, uh, which are somehow the proper knowledge of, of black people. I can't really think of a more anti-black racist sentiment than that, but okay, fine. That, that, that these things are designed to keep marginalized knowledge out. And to, that, that it's done in, she actually describes it, it says that it's done in both a willful and pernicious way so that the dominant white people can maintain the status quo of how we produce knowledge meaning by using rigorous methods. Um, you actually can hear this even in our government. It's not just these weird scholars. In a recent equity task force meeting in the state of Washington, it happened in January of this year, 2020, we had activists attempting to set up a program uh, under the banner Equity Equals Disrupt and Dismantle. And that was going to have executive administrative force, and they explicitly say over and over again that they have to establish it so that it retains relevance for at least 50 years. So their goal is explicitly to disrupt and dismantle the entrenched systems that constitute the status quo, uh, say, of knowledge production um, and educational programs based on evidence. At one point in this meeting, though, and this is what I really want to draw your attention to, they are finally, they kind of stall out, and they're finally called to move uh, to, to vote and to vote upon their agenda. And then one of the task force members interrupts and speaks up, raising his hand and says that he bristles at the need to move forward, again, with the emotional language. And the reason is because it's white supremacy speaking right through them to even suggest that they need to keep an agenda and check off boxes. If that's what white supremacy means, I mean, we're totally in a different universe now. Uh, that's the status quo they want to disrupt and dismantle. So rules of order, meeting agendas, doing your work in orderly fashions, that's the status quo. And we, this isn't it. I'm not done. 
We also see appeals like this in a, say, 2018 academic paper by the activist scholar Alison Wolf, who decries the reason-emotion divide in academic philosophy, indicating that uh, sticking with reason in, philo- in philosophy, in, in philosophy, sticking with reason perpetuates the inequitable status quo, and her conclusion is that we need to forward emotional reasoning, reasoning more and give it a higher status in philosophy. Again, we come back to Delgado and Stefanczyk's storytelling as an alternative, spinning narratives, uh, devaluing merit. The calls against the status quo are almost all like this throughout the critical social justice scholar-activist literature. They, they don't really deviate, but they do have a pattern. There are kind of two things that keep happening. First, they appeal to how the status quo, as they mean it, represents some kind of a hellscape of bigotry, merely because it was always a hellscape of bigotry, at least in their own minds. We can get a sense of that if we read in Kate Mann's Down Girl, for example. She writes, I would hence suggest, on the strength of this, that the mistreatment of historically subordinated people who are perceived as threatening the status quo often needs no special psychological story, such as dehumanization, to account for it. It can rather be explained in terms of the current current and historical social structures, hierarchical relations, and norms and expectations, together with the fact that they are widely internalized and difficult to eradicate. As with the analysis of misogyny I developed, we won't then need the supplementation of the dehumanization paradigm. Instead, I'm sorry, rather, the psychological story can be seen as the upshot of the internalization of ideology and features of the unjust but all-too-real moral cum social landscape. So... Starts off with this whole like, you know, bigotry hellscape that talk about how historically subordinated people have been mistreated, and we don't need to think just about that though, because we can turn now to these current uh, social structures and hierarchies that that somehow are just as bad, even though that's absolutely ridiculous. That's absolutely a ridiculous claim. I saw one today, as a matter of fact, a Medium article by somebody who's talking about the microaggressions she experiences as black. And okay, so maybe that sucks. I'm not going to like say it doesn't suck. But she's comparing, she literally starts off by comparing herself to the the, the psychological scars of these microaggressions to the whipping scars of a literal slave with a photograph. This is insane hyperbole. So that's the first step, is you make this big emotional appeal and then say that the status quo never really changed from that. Talk about what a hellscape bigotry was, therefore must be in some subtler fashion, and therefore we must disrupt the status quo entirely. The second step is to name as a status quo basically anything short of giving the radicals their way to overturn the whole table. We can go back to Bell Hook's book, Teaching to Transgress. There, she she has a number of conversations she documents in the book. And so one of them is with another activist scholar, Ron Scapp. And he responds to, to Bell Hooks and writes this. That's right. Professors who, in fact, do evoke the necessity of tradition could talk, talk about it differently. Tradition should be such a wonderful world, word, a rich word. Yet it is often used in a negative sense to repeat the tradition of power of the status quo. We could celebrate the tradition of teachers who have created a curriculum that is progressive, but such a tradition is never named or valued. Even when reading radical texts, even when reading radical texts, there is a need to do so in a way that validates the scholarship that they've been raised on. They can't let go of it. 
Even when they read certain things in class, it has to ultimately be pre presented in a fashion that is not inconsistent with everything else that has come before it. But it devalues the significance, the impact of a work by Toni Morrison or by yourself, if it is not taught in a manner that goes against the grain. In philosophy classes today, work on race, ethnicity, and gender is used, but not in a subversive way. It is simply used to update the curriculum superficially. This clinging to the past, remember reading Shakespeare by the way, this clinging to the past is mandated by the profound belief in the legitimacy of all that has come before. That's what they want to get rid of. Teachers who have these beliefs really have trouble experimenting and risking their bodies, the social order. They want the classroom to be the way it has always been. I mean, risking their bodies by teaching Toni Morrison next to Shakespeare? I mean, what, what are you talking about, man? I mean, just what are you talking about? But this is what they do, and this is the status quo they want to overthrow. And they keep saying it again and again everywhere they write. And they, they have an answer to this problem that he points out. So the, all the professors that we have now want to maintain the traditions of their program. They want to teach the way that they've taught. They want to tie it in with the knowledge we already have. How horrible. And they have an answer to this. Hire radical activists as teachers. And then throw massive fits over and over and over again that claim if we don't, we're just maintaining the status quo. So let me turn back to Isaac Gotsman and the Critical Term for Education, where he quotes Kimberly Crenshaw, the founder of intersectionality and one of the founders of critical race theory. Um, so Gotsman first, and then we'll quote Crenshaw. Uh, additionally, there were concrete examples that grounded these normative conversations in material reality. A prime example that emerged out of her own life was the crisis at Harvard Law School in the early 1980s when students vehemently argued for the hiring of faculty of color following the departure of Derrick Bell, who left Harvard for the dean position at the law school of the University of Oregon. Derrick Bell was the other person who created critical race theory with Kimberly Crenshaw and was Crenshaw's mentor for some context here. Back to Gottsman. In addition to wanting more faculty of color, students also wanted faculty of color to teach Bell's courses which used a racial lens to study American law. So as I said, hire activist teachers. In response to the university hiring two white civil rights attorneys to teach a course on civil rights law, numerous students boycotted, including Crenshaw, who as a student helped organize an alternative course which used Bell's 1973 first edition of Race, Racism, and American Law as a core text, and also included guest speakers such as Richard Delgado and Neil Gotanda. Yet Crenshaw contended it was about more than simply integration at Harvard. So you can kind of see the picture I just laid out, right? Get, t get activist teachers, pitch a fit if you don't get your way. This is, the, this is the game, right? This is the game they're playing, and we keep, we keep thinking this is, like, great. So R Crenshaw contended, rather, that it was, and now we switch to Crenshaw, a product of activists' engagement with the material manifestations of liberal reform. Indeed, one might say that critical race theory was the offspring of a post-civil rights institutional activism that was generated and informed by an oppositionalist orientation toward racial power. Activists' demands that elite institutions rethink and transform their conceptions of race neutrality in the face of functionally exclusionary practices engendered a particularly concrete defense of the status quo. These defenses in turn produced precisely the apologia 
for institutionalized racial dominance that critics of the dominant thinking, critics means them, the radicals, critics of the dominant thinking on race relations had voiced both historically and in more recent struggles over the terms of knowledge production in the academy. These institutional struggles presented post-reform critics with the hands-on opportunity to create an affirmative account of racial power and to mark the limits of liberal reform. It's a good time to remember where Alison Bailey said that this comes out of the neo-Marxist tradition. That's exactly what this is. Anyway, that said, this also has to be, you now see the outline, right? So the outline is pretty straightforward. Um, the first step is to appeal to the how the status quo is a hellscape of bigotry because it's, it's always been one, so it must still be one, and it's so terrible. And the second step is to uh, demand that they get to have power and get their way and hire activist teachers and so on to teach an activist program, and anything else is trying to maintain the status quo. Nasty, isn't it? This always has to be made more and more radical, or it doesn't count. We can go back to Bell Hooks. This is just a small vignette from, from near the beginning of Teaching to Transgress, where she writes, writes about her own history. It's a lot of storytelling, as you might imagine here. Part of a small integrated clique of the smart kids who considered ourselves artists. We believed we were destined to create outlaw culture, where we could live as bohemians forever free. We were certain of our radicalness. Days before the reunion, I was overwhelmed by memories and shocked to discover our, that our gestures of defiance had been now here. I have somehow messed this part up. Days before the reunion, I was overwhelmed by memories and shocked to discover that our gestures of defiance had been now here near as daring. I know. <laughs> Spaces. Nowhere. Days before the reunion, I was overwhelmed by memories and shocked to discover that our gestures of defiance had been nowhere near as daring as they had seemed at the time. Mostly, they were acts of resistance that did not truly challenge the status quo. So, believing themselves to have been radical outlaws wasn't sufficient. They had to be more and more and more radical. And kind of as a last point to, to talk about how they think about the status quo, you do have to realize that they don't allow neutrality on this point. You have to take a side. So either you're a radical or you support the status quo. Those are your only options. So quoting from Azam Sensoy and Robin D'Angelo in their education book, Is Everyone Really Equal? Although it does take ongoing study and practice before a social justice framework will fundamentally shape your work, to decide not to take on this commitment does not mean you are being neutral. Indeed, to decide not to take on this commitment is to actively support and reproduce the inequitable status quo. When we have developed a critical social justice consciousness, it is evident in all that we do and no longer seen as outside our job description. So to summarize, the status quo is the current state of things or way things are, usually said to require a good reason before it's changed. Uh, they clearly want to approach this in a very radical understanding of status quo, things that, they, that are the current state of how things are, using evidence, civility, having a meeting agenda, science, uh, rationality, not proceeding on emotion, not proceeding based on stories and spun narratives, um, 
the things they want to replace it with are believing that we live in a racist and bigoted hellscape and that the only possible solution is to give the radical people all of their way uh, down to reorganizing everything we teach, reorganizing everything we think, and hiring radicals as all of our teachers and professionals to make sure that we do it, in particular in the fields of knowledge production and knowledge dissemination, which would include media and education and faith in particular. So what are some of the things that we're doing wrong now that that we apparently need to have a good reason before we change them? I think you'll agree with me that we do need a good reason, a way better one than radicalism, to change some of these, like all of them. Science is one, democracy, free society, liberalism, rule of law, civility, due process of law, treating people as individuals instead of as representative members of whatever identity groups they happen to be in, equality, having a meeting agenda. So what do, do these, these radical activists want done to these things? They want them dismantled. They want them disrupted. They want them removed from society, and they want to socially engineer something different that they get to control. It's such an obvious fraud that the only amazing part is how difficult it is to get people to see just how fraudulent it is. And now we can pivot. We don't have to talk about them so much anymore, the, the radical activists. The thing that these radical activists want to get rid of are things that we should defend. They are things that we should want, that we do want. The moral high ground lives in defending them. The intellectual high ground lives in defending them. The civic high ground lives in defending them. The truth lives in defending them. A functioning society lives in defending them. Let's take a few examples. Science actually works. The rule of law and the due processes of law actually work. Treating people as equal individuals whose merits count for something actually works. If those are the status quo, we had better stand up for them and defend them because they actually work. Not because they maintain some group's power, which isn't even true, but because they work. And one of the things they work for is making sure no one group ends up with a monopoly on power. With science, law, and merit, as understood in the philosophically liberal sense, the one thing that they share in common is finding the most objective standards possible and deferring to those the very best we can so that we can resolve our conflicts of opinion or otherwise. It's all about solving conflicts that come up between people in good, effective ways that both parties are likely to deem as fair. When the system is corrupt, we don't think it's fair, of course, which is why we want to have these systems have as little corruption, not more corruption, as possible. So we have to start to understand that the thing these radicals want to destroy for justice, and that's in quotes, scare quotes, for justice, is a system of conflict management that maybe can't make everyone happy all the time but it has a better chance of achieving justice, both now and in the future as it continues to improve itself, than anything we've ever socially engineered for ourselves. These kinds of ideas, science, law, merit, work as ideals. The radicals like to point out how they fail and say they're not perfect, so we have to dismantle, disrupt, subvert, destroy, get rid of them. But they're not perfect, and nobody, nobody expects them to be perfect except people who barely understand them or have a child's understanding of them. They're not perfect. They can't be perfect. 
And that's no reason to disrupt and dismantle them, or just to brand them the status quo, which is blatantly ridiculous if you understand them, uh, as though some you know totally whack social program cooked up by non-expert revolutionaries could magically work better. I mean, the whole thing is so preposterous. But let's go into some more detail. Scientists aren't perfect, they're people. Fine. They have biases. But this isn't news. Everybody knows this. We've known this for a long time. They can't make perfect measurements. We've known this for a better part of a hundred years. Some of them are frauds. We uncover them from time to time and they get in trouble. Some of them are socially awkward assholes. Well, they are scientists. All of this is completely irrelevant or very nearly completely irrelevant. Science isn't the people, it is a process. It is a process that can strive toward objectivity as an ideal because it lets anyone do the experiment. It lets everyone check each other's biases and it lets people get famous for overturning someone who didn't get it right. Science works in spite of the worst scientists because it absolutely demands methodological rigor and allows anyone to participate in that process while demanding that their identity is always irrelevant to the outcome of the experiment or any other fact about the world. The basic principle of science could be boiled down to this. You think this thing, I think that thing. So let's go ask nature which one is real. Nature doesn't have a political stance, it's just what is. Now let's talk about law. The law isn't perfect. Fine. That's why we have legislatures to write new laws, to repeal old laws that are bad, to reform existing laws, to update laws as things change. Once a system of law is in place, we can actually defer to that as the current standard and treat it as temporarily objective. We can use its mechanisms then to appeal to change it when it's not sufficient, but at any given moment we work within the law we have. This is an entire process we've been using for hundreds of years for doing this, and it works wonderfully. So this means that the law in a liberal society becomes a quasi-objective standard for now that we can appeal to, defer to, work with, and when it sucks, change. For example, before 1964 there was no Civil Rights Act. Then there was. The law changed. Things got better, progress happened. The system isn't perfect, but it actually works. The basic principle of the rule of law is, you think this, I think that, let's appeal to this standard we've agreed upon that's outside both of us to see how to resolve the conflict. And it works. We live in a free, representative democracy. The laws we have don't come from the sky, they don't come from kings, they don't come from rulers. They come from representatives that people elect in free elections. If you don't like the laws, you can blame the lawmakers and then vote for different lawmakers who have laws that you do like or have ideas at least they can bring to the legislature for laws that you might like better. You can also write to your legislature. You can call your legislator. You can lobby the legis legislators. And you can do lots of things, petitioning, protests, and so on, to try to make yourself heard so that we can make changes to the law to continue to try to make the laws better, more fair, and more representative of solutions that people can agree upon and agree to and then be willing to defer to when it comes to a matter of dispute. Dismantling the system is madness. 
because it is the system that was created specifically to avoid the caprice of malicious rulers who think they know better than everybody. We really don't need to replace it with a system designed by people who think they know better than everybody. What about merit? I'm going to say the same thing. Merit isn't perfect. There's lots of corruption out there. Nepotism, favoritism, cronyism. There are some really bogus issues where people can't be hired or tenured because of their immutable characteristics like their race, say by diversity and equity requirements now or uh, other forms of racism that were more operative in the past. One's merit can actually only go so far in an imperfect system, and every system has to be imperfect. And there are always other incentives because people aren't robots. And as it turns out, some of them are racists who get institutional power because of bad policy and court decisions. Yet again, we return to our offices of diversity and inclusion. As an ideal, though, merit is a real thing. Actually, merit is just real in and of itself. It's knowing how to do something. And like methodological rigor in science, it actually matters. So we see these calls to end standardized testing in schools because black and Latino students do worse on average on these tests. This allegedly makes it harder for them to get into colleges and so on. What a bunch of bullshit. What a backwards way to see it. This is no sense of history. The whole point of standardized tests, and yes, I can recognize that they have been used at different times to prevent people from voting or to prevent people from access, that's fine. But the whole point of standardized tests, and again, they're not perfect, they can obviously be researched and rigorously improved, however, the point of them is to create yet another near or quasi-objective standard that prevents discrimination from being possible. Any kid who gets a high score on the SAT can get into a good college. Any kid. There's no way to say he's not suitable to go to a good college because of his race or whatever else, because if he got a good score on the SAT, he proved himself to be suitable. These test scores often overcome really bad backgrounds, bad neighborhoods, bad GPAs, bad schools, a whole slew of bad circumstances. And they create great opportunities. Like anything, of course, they're a gameable system where some people, usually people with more money and more stable home lives, can game that system better than others. But that's a relatively small corruption in comparison to the huge corruption that becomes the norm when there are no objective standards and everything comes down to some subjective measurement. Those are almost always going to be full of nepotism, favoritism, cronyism, and so on, because humans are humans and will still try to give an unfair leg up to people that are close to their causes. The point of setting up an objective standard in the first place is to get away from the murky subjective ones. Why would we go back? In a society that operates on merit, the question basically becomes, okay, you think you should be in this position, I think I should be in this position, let's identify and defer to the most objective standards that we can find so that the best player among us wins. That is, the question becomes, I think I can do the job, you think you can do the job, let's see who can do the job better. Merit isn't perfect because we're human, but it's still far more alive and well and important than these radical activists who hate it would have you believe. And 
to be completely honest, since they've wanted to take the gloves off, I'll take mine off a little too, this is mostly because their merit is rather poor. And if you read their literature, where they often tell their stories about how they got into the critical theory in the first place, they tell you. They tell you things like, we tried to, we tried to run a business or we tried to run a clinic or we tried to try to publish our scholarship and they wouldn't accept it we were failing at our business and so on so we turned our attention to criticizing the system there where we couldn't succeed so no wonder these people hate merit but let's slow down again and, and think about things for a minute can a stagnant awful status quo really survive in a set of overlapping systems that works this way. That's the argument I want to make is no, it can't. The thing that they say is the status quo we must overturn doesn't exist. And the thing that they refer to as the status quo is actually the thing that prevents the status quo from existing. They've got it all backwards. They've got it all wrong. So if we constantly defer to the truth with the best methods possible, our knowledge will be optimal, not perfect, optimal. And it doesn't matter who produces it. All that matters is whether or not it's been framed well and corresponds faithfully enough to reality. When this happens, better knowledge keeps coming because bad ideas keep getting cut down and thrown out. That's how science works. The bad ideas get cut down and thrown out. The result is that we know more, and thus we're able to do better, and that's what we consistently see. We can use an instructive uh, example here in the history of how homosexuality has been viewed. It's a great example. It's really poignant, in fact, because a lot of this grievance activism comes from the pessimistic and cynical theories of a particular French philosopher named Michel Foucault, who got this all wrong. And yes, that Michel Foucault, Dr. Postmodernism. So before the modern era, Christianity held court on how things were, at least in Europe, and it saw homosexuality as a behavior and a sin to be repressed, suppressed, punished, and trained out of people. Not a great time, at least not to be homosexual. Then psychological science started to weigh in on the matter, and it categorized homosexuality as a disorder to be treated, sometimes involving brutal experiments that are utterly inhumane. Still not good, and that's what Foucault noted. He began, in that vein, a very cynical and unfair historiography of science that still rages in his name today. His case was, oh, even as we knew better, we still did terribly. But one will notice, for example, that as bad as this psychiatric status may be and the abuses that followed from it, it had represented a movement out of the realm of magic and into people's heads somehow, not correctly, but somehow. And that's actually where it lives, because our sexual orientation is actually a function of something going on in our brains. Then, at this stage, things continued to develop, knowledge got better, and two things started to happen at once. First, ethical liberals started to notice that all of this treatment of homosexuals was horrible, and they started to campaign for gay rights, first in law, and then in broader society. They campaigned for gay acceptance, eventually gay equality, and they got it. Gay marriage is the law now. Gay acceptance is standard now, to the point where gay people are considered to be privileged and are no longer afforded real protective status under the, the social justice woke doctrines. Second, science progressed even further and came to understand homosexuality better. It started to realize 
that homosexuality is a legitimate and stable sexual orientation, or set of them. It's not a pathology, and it's not a kind of sinful act that indicates perversion and depravity. So more change came as we got better knowledge. This reinforced the new and growing ethical stance, which more or less boils down to some people are gay, get over it. That's the liberal position now. That's where the end of this story that's allegedly a horrible status quo goes. Some people are gay, get over it. It's your problem if you can't stand it now. That's that's the status quo that we're supposed to overthrow. So this is what we're supposed to disrupt and, and dismantle because it's the status quo and we're supposed to replace it with what? Queer theory? Of course, queer theory. And what does that say? It says there's no such thing as a stable orienta- sexual orientation and that one because that would be a category. You can't have stable categories. And so then it says that, that one's sexual identity is ultimately a matter of not precisely a choice but an odd kind of choice to be authentically queer. But that's not even really an identity category so much as it is a political position within the theory because we saw examples like Pete Buttigieg who, despite being a Democrat trying to run for president and gay and married to a man, wasn't properly queer. So it wasn't good enough. So so we're going to replace this, you know, march of progress with that? Taking it back to the realm of choice, something? Uh, no, I don't think so. The same thing happens in law. If we can elect representatives to change the laws and we can elect judges or officials who appoint the judges to adjudicate upon those laws, then we have a system where the law isn't the status quo. It's something that is uh, contingent on what the people are demanding within the confines of, say, a constitution. So there was a time when slavery was legal and then it was forbidden by a series of constitutional amendments. And then there was a time for a long time when when discrimination like Jim Crow and other uh, harsh disenfranchisements, discriminations, uh, prejudices, and so on were legal and common. And then there was a Civil Rights Act. Things are still improving. These things are still improving. There was, although almost no one noticed it in all the noise, just recently, in the last few days, a Supreme Court decision protecting homosexual and trans identities from certain types of being of, of firing from their, their jobs under Title VII of that very same Civil Rights Act of 1964. So hang on. The Civil Rights Act is from 1964. So is that the status quo? Is that a revolution that stopped being revolutionary and stopped being authentic and became the status quo? Is that what we need to disrupt and dismantle? I don't think so. The law we have in a free democratic society is a set of terms we've agreed to in that society. And in free societies, we accept those terms because we, the people, ultimately get the authority to call upon our government in various ways to change them if and when necessary. The radicals are clearly very keen on making use of those processes and dramatically uh, exaggerating the definitions, for example, of peaceful protest. Um, This is actually a great system. It's really the best system of government that human beings have ever come up with. It is by definition oriented against the enduring maintenance of any status quo because of how it's been set up. You can always petition for the redress of your grievances. You can hi- you can elect, therefore hire, new legislators to go try to change the laws. 
you can set up your own lobbying agency to go inform these legislators. We shouldn't dismantle this system. What about merit? When we let merit be the judge of competence, we also undermine the status quo. Letting the best person get the job to the best of our abilities, which we can keep improving, based upon their proven capacity to do that job, is the best way to create real productivity and the best way to elevate people out of the bad circumstances that they started in and into better ones. That's to their benefit, and it's to the benefit of everybody in society. It doesn't perpetuate the status quo to lean on merit. It obliterates it. The best people we can find doing the best jobs they can always makes the fastest progress. Do you have any idea what the most destabilizing anti-status quo thing in the whole universe is? It's not radical activism. All the biggest lessons of history, all the biggest changes in history can be boiled down to just one thing, and you're using it now. It's advancing technology. The colonialism they're enraged at, that's because people invented steel and cannons. It's always always developing technology. The United Nations, the League of Nations, and so on, all of these huge peacekeeping organizations that are supposed to work globally following the world wars to try to prevent another world war, that's the result of an advance in technology where we realize that the human impulse to conquest and colonization and imperialism is not compatible with an advanced technological world that has airplanes and nuclear weapons and machine guns and napalm. It's just not. This is progress kind of in a more benign sense, but much bigger in the context of human history and to tie into your experience at this instant. We invented language and the world changed. We invented writing and the world changed again. We invented the printing press and the world changed massively. <laughs> Centuries of wars broke out over the disruption of the printing press. We invented mass media, the world changed again. Look, we had world wars. Now we've invented the internet and the world has changed again. Technology is the most disruptive thing, and we get technology. If we're worried about disrupting the status quo, the real, the bad status quo, technology is the way we disrupt it. And you get the most technology, you get the most progress in technology when you have the most merit working in the most meritorious jobs. That's just how that goes. In the real world, anyway, not in abstract theory, upside down, pretend Alice in Wonderland world. Um,. And I've just mentioned, you know, a couple of things, war and, and, and information distribution. Uh, but I can remember in my history of mathematics classes in graduate school, I had a quirky professor, and he insisted, which I thought was weird at the time, calling every like different mathematical invention throughout history a technology. It actually blew my mind. I thought about it a lot. So you go to like Indo-Arabic numerals, that's a technology. Algebra, technology. Calculus, differential equations, technology. Tensor calculus technology. It was really a mind-opening way to look at, you know, things we take for granted. Algebra, a thousand-year-old technology. Calculus, a 500-year-old technology. Tensor calculus, a 100-year-old technology. And every one of these advances allowed for some new and better technical progress. Modern banking, for example, and accounting became possible when we adopted an efficient number system with Indo-Arabic numerals. Uh, documenting physical laws, figuring out the workings of the universe, and creating functional engineering followed from discovering algebra, and then calculus, and then differential equations. Einstein himself even didn't have the talent to. Einstein couldn't write down general relativity until 
Mathematicians worked out tensor calculus around him. And without general relativity, we can't have GPS satellites that work. So we can't have GPS. So all of this disruptive, inherently anti-status quo technology that comes along, comes along because we invent more technology. And that comes along because we have merit choosing who gets to, to advance knowledge. The most meritorious person we can find in perfect process, stepping into the job doing the best job they can, also in perfect process. It's not perfect, but it works. It Maybe we can't claim that we live in a meritocracy, you know, in the strict sense, but we can, we can say that our society values merit very highly, recognizes its worth, and knows why we stand behind it. And we're not going to disrupt and dismantle that for these stupid radicals, because what do they want? They want something that does not produce progress, okay? What doesn't produce progress is some mired bureaucratic administrative nonsense. But that's all these so-called, <laughs> Bell Hooks calls herself a lawless bohemian radical. She's a bureaucrat. That's all they're interested in producing. Why do you think they all end up working in the administration, in human resources? They all end up in paper-pushing roles where what they get to do is tell everybody what to do, who to hire, how to be, how to dress, how to think, how to act. And they just keep making mountains of bullshit proclamations and paper about how we need to add more steps, more complexity, more corruption, more rules. The corruption, by the way, is called equity. More edicts, more demands, and more and more and more administrators just like themselves to oversee it all. Why do you think they end up in those roles? Because they're bureaucrats. They're barely even radicals at heart. And that's also why their movements keep getting taken over by real radicals who step in and end up setting fire to buildings and leaving the bureaucrats to go on TV and explain ass backwards why that was a good thing in line with their ideas. Bureaucracy is something that is actually necessary to run any institution of sufficient size. I don't want to crap on bureaucracy in this weird blanket, uninformed fashion. It does, it matters, and it's fine, it's important to the degree that it's actually necessary, but let's not kid ourselves that we're going to get more progress away from a status quo by getting more bureaucrats, by establishing a bigger bureaucratic uh, hierarchy, hiring more diversity deans, more diversity administrators, putting a diversity office in your workplace, putting a diversity office in Congress, putting an equity task force in the state of Washington with administrative force. We're not going to get less status quo by this means. We're going to get way more of some new status quo that sucks and is even harder to get out of. It is be very hard to overturn that status quo if it comes into play because it cannot be argued against. It doesn't allow petition against grievances. It says that everybody who disagrees with it does so because they're a racist or have other selfish motives like privilege preserving epistemic pushback. That was our Allison Bailey example that we read from earlier. So merit means progress. Rule of law, due process of law, and free democratic societies mean progress. Science and technology mean progress. These are all intrinsically oriented against the establishment and maintenance of any oppressive status quo by their very nature. Any such thing can't last for long. And that can't be said for endless heaps of more bureaucracy and busybody activists who want to get into everybody's lives and everybody's heads and tell them who and how to be at all times. So we should defend the status quo that has scare quotes around it. And the best way to do it is to point out that this so-called status quo 
that these overeducated and underinformed radical activists are afraid of doesn't even exist in the system that they want to destroy. Theirs is a road to serfdom. So we have nothing, nothing to be ashamed about when we defend a so-called status quo that is in fact a system designed so that no one ever needs to be stuck in the status quo for long if they're just willing to make use of the system to advance themselves and to keep refining that system itself so it can keep doing better. Let's not keep falling for their trick.